you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. The title of the book, Ecclesiastes, the name of the book, comes from a Greek term that translates the name that we find in the first verse, name uh, Kohelet, the preacher, the speaker to the assemblies. You'll recognize in Ecclesiastes the term ecclesiastical, referring to the church. Uh, it, it refers to a gathering, a congregation gathered is where the term comes from. And so it translates the name Koheleth, here in the NI, or the ESV, rather, uh, translated the preacher. Today, in our series of studies in Ecclesiastes, we're in chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure. What use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of a man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Let us pray. Father, we turn to your word. We pray for the light of your spirit. Father, we thank you for this portion especially today. In many ways, a very bleak passage, and yet all the more so full of light, Lord, because of the brutal reality with which it looks at life in this world. And so, Father, we pray our study of this text would be encouraging and edifying to us and convicting where needed, but also, Father, would be an act of worship to you and would glorify you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If it feels good, do it. You only go around once. Carpe diem, 
seize the day. These are slogans of an approach to life called hedonism. Hedonism, noun, pursuit of or devotion to pleasure, especially to the pleasures of the senses. Hedonist, noun, a person whose life is devoted to the pursuit of pleasure and self-gratification. Many people are hedonists to one extent or another, some by philosophical commitment, but many, many more simply are practical hedonists, getting up, going out each day simply to taste whatever pleasures they can find in life. Hedonists to one extent or another. Go to Florida on spring break, you'll see one extreme of hedonism. And while others don't often reach such, such excess, uh, yet, nevertheless, they really do live for the pleasures that life can afford. They live for the weekend. They live for enjoyment. Madison Avenue often targets our inner hedonists. The commercial tells us, obey your thirst. Even fast food restaurants are into it. You deserve a break today. Enjoy it all while you can. If you can't afford it, charge it. After all, you only go around once. Well, this is nothing new, of course. In ancient Greece, the Epicureans made a studied effort to enjoy life, live by the saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Some of them were excessive in their pursuit of pleasure. Others took the high road and a more cultured approach, but the end result was the same. Life is full of pain, so get out of it whatever pleasure you can quickly before you die. Now, it's also not new to our day because we find it here, this approach to life, uh, examined and put before us here in the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes is the reflections of the preacher, Kohelet, uh, traditionally has been thought to be Solomon, although the book never claims Solomon as its author. But it is also certain that even if Solomon is not the author of it himself, then much of it is written setting up Solomon as the epitome of the man of wisdom, the man of means. And we got something of a taste of the scale of Solomon's wisdom, the scope of Solomon's wealth and means to live life to the full from the passage that we read earlier in 1 Kings. If anybody could live life well, if anyone had the resources to try it all out, if anyone had the freedom without restraint to do whatever he wanted to do in this world, it was Solomon. And so Solomon approaches life we saw last time trying to decide maybe it's in knowledge and wisdom that meaning is found in life. And he acknowledged that while, yes, it's better to go through life in wisdom than in folly, nevertheless, uh, death claims the sage as well as the fool. It is the great leveler. Well, he came up empty, declared that to be vanity. The word means uh, a puff of wind, a puff of breath, nothing more lasting than that, a mere vapor, a mist. Well, maybe the meaning to life, maybe the true satisfaction in living comes from somewhere else. 
And so he's, we come into chapter 2, he's looking elsewhere. Maybe satisfaction is found in the good life. Maybe satisfaction is found in the wild life. Well, you'll remember this book is written, as the, the phrase keeps occurring, from an under-the-sun point of view, under-heaven point of view. If you rule God out of the equation, what does life look like? Where do we find meaning? Where do we find satisfaction? Those are the kinds of explorations that he's making. It wasn't in knowledge and wisdom. That was a letdown. So maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe meaning and happiness in life is found in fun. Maybe it's found in pleasure. Maybe it's found in living the good life. Maybe it's found in the activities and the enjoyments of all kinds in this world. And so we have the account of his, uh, his research in verses 1 through 11. First of all, uh, Solomon records for us, written here, that perhaps pleasure is found in the good life, in the, in the wildlife, in the, in the party life. Maybe that's where meaning is found. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Notice, first of all, and it's worth noting this, that what's happening here is a conversation with oneself. He's not saying, I spoke to wise advisors. He said, I said to myself, I said to my own heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And up front, he gives us the, the result of his, um, of his survey. But behold, this also was vanity. But he goes on to give us the details anyway. But he says up front, look, tried it. This came up empty. Well, let's look at some of the details that he gives us. Verse 2, he tried laughter, tried mirth, another way of translating the word pleasure. There are a set of laughter. It's mad and of pleasure. What use is it? Now, we need to recognize that the scriptures in, in no way attack a healthy sense of humor. In fact, the scriptures itself, Proverbs 17, 22, a joyful heart is like good medicine. And there is something healthful about laughter, about being able to have and maintain a humorous take on life, especially when things are hard or don't go well, to be able to maintain a perspective that allows us to laugh at ourselves and to laugh at the things that happen to us in life. A joyful heart is good medicine. But the Proverbs also recognize that laughter has a way of being superficial. And laughter can in fact be many things. I don't know if you ever stop just to think about laughing. It's kind of a funny idea itself when you think about it, that we make this funny noise. And sometimes we make this funny noise all together. It's kind of this almost barking noise from our throat when something is, is humorous. But laughter can be the enjoyment of a pleasant moment. Uh, laughter can be the result of seeing irony in life. Uh, laughter can also be the result of uh, a spirit motivated by cruelty, laughing at someone, a way of hurting someone. So laughter is kind of an ambiguous thing, and it's somewhat superficial. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 13 says, Even in laughter, the heart may ache, and the end of joy may be grief. Sometimes people may be laughing, and yet their heart hurts. And yet they're really not laughing out of happiness or out of joy. One writer talks about a disturbed, deeply troubled individual who went to a psychiatrist to relieve his anxiety. 
He woke melancholy every morning, and he went into, be, went into the evening deeply depressed. His day was marked by darkness and clouds. He couldn't find relief for his anxiety, and so in his desperate condition, he decided to seek the counsel of a medical doctor. The psychiatrist listened to him for nearly an hour. Finally, he leaned toward the patient. He said, you know, there's a show at the theater. I understand a new Italian clown has come to our city. He's leaving them in the aisles. He's getting rave reviews from the critics. Maybe he's the one who will bring back your happiness. Why don't you go see this professional clown and laugh your troubles away? And with a hangdog expression, the patient muttered, Doctor, I am that clown. And if you know anything of the biographies of even professional comedians, you may know that very often the laughter ends when they leave the stage. Laughter can be very shallow. People who seem to be living very happy lives filled with laughter, filled with mirth, often are covering up a hurting heart. Uh, William Wilberforce, uh, the, the Christian Great Britain in the 1900s, who was instrumental uh, through his perseverance in the abolition of the slave trade, wrote of himself, often, and he's writing of his pre-conversion experience, often while in the full enjoyment of all that this world could bestow, my conscience told me that in the true sense of the word, I was not a Christian. I laughed, I sang, I was apparently happy, but the thought would steal across me, what madness is all this? To continue easy in a state in which a sudden call out of the world could consign me to everlasting misery, and that when eternal happiness is within my grasp. Curious, he uses the same word translated here that Solomon uses, madness, to uh, reflect on his uh, trivial laughter and uh, enjoyment in life outside of Christ. Well, not only that, he tries laughter. He goes on at not only that and tries in verse 3, wine, drink. Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, it's hard to know how to take what he's saying here. Is he describing drunkenness or is he more of a connoisseur, you know, carefully sipping various wines, building a nice wine cellar and can tell you all about different kinds of wines? It's really hard to say because on the one hand, he says, my heart's still guiding me with wisdom as if to say, now, you know, I wasn't tanked. We didn't go out and get bombed. We were just sipping some wine here. But then he goes on to say, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do. It's possible it was both. Maybe just blind, staggering drunkenness. Maybe being a connoisseur of fine wines. Maybe that would be something that would uh, lend meaning and satisfaction to his life. Uh, he goes on, having described um, what we could describe as something of the, the, the party life the laughter, the mirth, the drinking, whatever measure, um, that wasn't it. He goes on then to describe the pleasure of creative projects. Look at verses four through six. He talks about his architecture. I made great works, I built houses. Um, he did, he built a magnificent palace for himself. In fact, he was instrumental, Solomon was, in the building of the Lord's temple, although that's not mentioned here perhaps because we're maintaining that under the sun perspective. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. And you see his, his uh, efforts uh, in horticulture. He had quite the green thumb, apparently. Planted vineyards for myself, made myself gardens and parks, planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. 
course, all of this takes water, right? Verse 6, I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. And so he gets into architecture and construction. He gets into horticulture and planting and irrigation, beautiful gardens, cultivated plants. It is worth noting here how selfish this was. I made for myself. I made for myself. I made myself. All of this done for his own enjoyment. This is not some sort of civics project, civic project for beautification of his community. This was for his own pleasure. So he could look and see what he had done for the sheer joy and work of doing it for himself. The pleasure of creative projects. Well, he goes on then to talk about the pleasure of amassing possessions. Look at verses 7 and 8. I bought male and female slaves, had slaves who were born in my house, had also great possessions of herbs, herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So he acquires for himself great wealth, and using the financial wealth he has to acquire other possessions. And as we read earlier in 1 Kings, Solomon's wealth of, of all that he had. He had slaves, people doing work. He would direct them, and they would do work for him. Herds and flocks, which was an important measure in the day of someone's wealth and financial uh, stability. Silver, gold, and treasures. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we read, Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. Uh, acquired entertainment. Now, you know, in Solomon's day, uh, that he couldn't get a nice stereo system, couldn't get an iPod, you know, no vending machine, you go and get your iPod. Uh, didn't even have a record player. Didn't even have eight-track tapes. You know, in that day, if you wanted music, it had to be live or you didn't get music. And so he had singers, he had choirs, male and female, to, to sing for him. Anytime he wanted to hear some music, he didn't go you know, turn on his iPod or download a song or put the record on or whatever, uh, whatever generation or decade you relate to musically. You had to call in the choir. You had to get the orchestra in uh, if you were going to hear music. And so he had that. It would be the equivalent of saying, I had this immense sound system uh, there for my enjoyment. And without going into too much detail, he mentions uh, his concubines, the delight of the children of man. Uh, the scriptures elaborate a little on that in other places, notably 1 Kings chapter 11, uh, verse 3 tells us that Solomon had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. Um, it also notes his wives turned away his heart. Um, even in his day, that was rather excessive, uh, probably more a show for the world than it was the reality of real relationships. Um, in other words, what Solomon is doing as he goes through here, and he says, I had it all. 
You name the pleasure, I had it to a degree and in a scale no one before me and pretty much no one ever since has had. He could do whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted, with whomever he wanted. He had wealth untold. He had power unchallenged. It was a time of peace in the kingdom, time to grow fat and happy. The, the wars had been fought and won under David, the kingdom made secure. And in Solomon's day, it was a, it was a peaceful and wealthy and live it up kind of time. Wouldn't it be great to be like Solomon? Wouldn't it be great to have it all? Wouldn't it be great to win the lottery? Millions and millions of dollars. You know, there's been more than one person who's won the lottery who said it was the worst thing that ever happened to them. You see, it's an illusion that having it all would make you happy. Because if having it all makes you happy, then the world's Paris Hiltons would be the most happy, contented people of all. But they're not. It's an illusion. One writer tells a story of a person who, who lived out this fantasy life. All he had to do was think of it, and poof, it happened. So this man, in a moment of time, sticks his hands in his pocket and leans back and imagines a mansion. And poof, he has a 15-bedroom home in which to live, three stories, servants instantly available to wait on his every need. Well, can't have a place like that without some fine cars parked out in the driveway. So uh, he again closes his eyes and imagines his driveway full of the finest wheels money can buy. And poof! There's several of the world's best automobiles right there in the driveway. He's free to drive them himself, or he can call the chauffeur and ride in the back, hidden behind the tinted glass, to go wherever he wishes. There's no place to travel, so he comes back home and wishes for a sumptuous meal, and poof, there's the meal right in front of him with all its mouth-watering aroma and beauty, which he eats alone. And yet there was something more he needed to find happiness, and finally... He grows so terribly bored and unchallenged that he whispers to one of the attendants, I want to get out of this. I want to create some things again. I'd, I'd rather be in hell than in here. To which, of course, one of the servants says to him, where do you think you are? Possessions, as Solomon discovers, will let you down if that is what you were living for. Well, then in verses 9 through 11, we have his assessment, his reflections, and then the conclusion of the matter. Look at verse 9. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil." Well, he acknowledges he had pleasure in the doing of it. He enjoyed the work. He enjoyed taking on these tasks, the construction, the building was something he liked. And the, the pleasure in doing it was the reward he got from it. This was the reward for all my toil. Then, verse 11, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. If, if, if happiness, if contentedness, if meaning could be gained through pleasure, Solomon would have gained it. 
while acknowledging the pleasure of the task itself, he has to admit that from the point of view of lasting meaning, this really did not pass the test. It ultimately proved, as he says, to be vanity, empty, striving after the wind, nothing to be gained ultimately under the sun. Much like the person who wrote anonymously these words, my journey through the darkness has only accelerated. I've become adept at inventing counterfeit lights, bright colored flashing lights, pseudo rainbows, artificial sunsets, celluloid stars. More recently, I discovered that God is dead anyway. I'm a product of organic evolution, a cosmic accident, a unique moment in a mysterious 30 billion year process. It is an adventure filled with suspense and cruelty and meaninglessness. And though I do not know what is ahead, never fear, I'm on my way. Even today, after reading the morning news and the latest issue of Time magazine, and even though I acknowledge countless gallons of human tears, the endless cycle of agonizing tragedy, I, along with the world's majority, maintain that Adam made the right decision. Even as I swallow my tranquilizers, rush to my psychiatrist, take that extra drink, endure my third divorce, and watch my children reject all of the ideals I've tried to pass on, I still say there is hope. Whoever wrote that's delusional. Reality is this. Under the sun, there is no hope. There's no meaning. Under the sun, ruling God out of the equation, life is ultimately meaningless. It's the reality of God and knowing God in Christ, the one we were created to know, that gives life meaning. Stuff, no matter what kind, no matter how much, stuff will never ultimately give meaning or satisfaction or happiness or contentment or peace in life. It may make it more comfortable, might make it more convenient, but it will never make it meaningful. Be careful, though, that you don't take away the wrong lesson from this passage. Because our Lord is not teaching us here that material possessions or the enjoyment that this world has to offer is somehow bad or wrong. Though 900 wives and 300 concubines probably was a bad thing and led Solomon's heart away from the Lord and was a violation of God's design of one man and one woman. A, one, a good husband's a good thing. A good wife is a good thing. But apart from that, the other things that Solomon had were not necessarily bad things in and of themselves. In fact, they're good things. 1 Timothy 6, 17 speaks of God's richly providing for us everything to enjoy. We are to enjoy the blessings, the good things that God gives us in this world to enjoy. The key, however, is to enjoy them while pursuing God. You know, pleasures are kind of a paradox. You pursue the pleasure, you lose the pleasure. You pursue God, you gain God and the pleasure of life. Pleasures pursued in and of themselves are elusive. Pleasures are a byproduct of pursuing God. They become bad to us when we make worldly pleasures an end in themselves. When we look to the pleasures of life to provide meaning and satisfaction for our souls. When we make of them, in other words, 
an idol, a god. And that is a weight too great for them to bear. And they will let you fall every time. Worship God. Trust in Christ. Live by the Spirit. Pursue the one true God with all of your might. Find your life in Him. Then you will be able to enjoy for what they are, the blessings of this world, the pleasures, the delights of this world that He gives you to enjoy. Enjoy Him. Don't worship them. Worship God. Let's pray. Father, you have blessed us with much in this world. And Lord, we acknowledge that it is easy sometimes for the gifts to entice our hearts away from the giver. Father, we all living in this world are tempted to pursue these things, to pursue false gods of all kinds. And Lord, we can identify, if only on a much smaller scale, with the emptiness that Solomon describes here in these words that came out of his experiment on a grand scale. Father, we recognize that the stuff, the pleasures, the projects, the activities of this world simply cannot satisfy the ultimate hunger and thirst of the soul for you. And Father, forgive us when we've tried to feed our souls on that. But Lord, we thank you that insofar as we found it empty, we are driven back to you, driven back to Christ, driven back to the reality that we were made for you, to know you, to glorify you, to enjoy you. And Father, I pray for myself and for all of us here that as we pursue you, we would find our heart's delight, our heart's contentment, our heart's satisfaction, our soul's delight and meaning in knowing you, living for you, walking with you, and thereby able to enjoy, truly enjoy the pleasures of this world in a way that honors and glorifies you and blesses us. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.